before we start, a couple of quick notes. Uh, this was recorded when the release date of Solar Settlers was supposed to be uh, the 19th. That got changed around, so some of the dates you hear on this podcast are not accurate, including my initial assertion that it's mid-June. Nope, mid-July. Quarter to three games podcast for mid June 2017. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Endless Space 2. Hi there, uh, my name is Brett Lowy, and my game of the week is absolutely not Age of Empires. Why? Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, I just, I'm sure that it's not that. It could be any number of other things, but it's not that. If you had to pick one Age of Empires, we're going to abolish all of – all of them are going to be retroactively canceled from existence except one. And this is going to say a lot about you, Brett. <laughs> Which one do you pick? Oh, that's not even a question. Uh, Age of Empires 2. You're one of those people. <laughs> uh, I'm yeah. an Age of Empires 3 guy all the cool. way. I don't cool, understand cool. you people who want to go back and micromanage hunting – you know, deer and can lions eat your guys in two, or was that just one? Ah, man, it's been so long since I played it, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, because I there's just three. I, yeah, I'm three all the way. Brett, play some more Age of Empires three before I accept your answer as your final answer. Just fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so you are an RTS guy, or you were? Yeah, classically, especially more so StarCraft and Warcraft. Uh, ah, growing okay. up, yeah, yeah. I remember eagerly anticipating Warcraft three when it was coming out. One of the things that I want to ask you, but first let's establish who you are and why we're sitting here talking, if folks don't know already. Uh, who is Brain Good Games? Explain to me what this company is. Sure. So right now, Brain Good Games is, consists of me, <laughs> Brett Lowy, uh, and I do programming, game design, art, sound, marketing, everything. Uh, and we're a, uh, or I am an obviously a, a small uh, game dev studio uh, out of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, um, and I primarily make single-player strategy games. Did you have a background in game design before? So Militia was your first game, right? That's correct, yeah. That was released in December 2015. Um, oh my gosh, that seems really recent. For some reason, I was thinking Militia was like eight years old or something. <laughs> oh, break. Got that... go, go ahead, sorry. sorry. Yeah, it's kind of got that classic vibe, I guess, like uh, pretty minimalist and yeah. It's also, Brett, that uh, the games you've done since then have come – I mean, Militia holds up for what it is. But since then, the games you've done have, have kind of felt like they've really come a long way. Uh, it you. seems like Militia is something that you did years and years ago when you were first starting out. Uh, <laughs> what, yeah. what did you do before you sat down and made this game Militia? Right. So uh, growing up, I kind of knew that uh, I wanted to make games, like even as a kid. Um, but it never really seemed like a feasible career path for a lot of reasons. Um, but I took computer science in university, uh, and I think kind of subconsciously I was thinking I would use that to make games someday. Um, but then along the way, I kind of toned that back, and I thought I was going to get into web development maybe or security or something like that. Um, and I graduated with my degree and, and uh, did some software for car dealerships, actually. Um, <laughs> It but, sounds uh, really skeezy. Like I'm thinking of used cars and. Uh, well, yeah. Well, it, it definitely wasn't for me. Um, but then I, I, uh, lo and behold, on LinkedIn, I got a a job offer uh, for a position, a local game company here, making an iOS game. Uh, and I jumped at the opportunity, um, and I kind of got my feet wet learning Unity that way. Worked there for a year. Um, yeah, and then uh, uh, got laid off there, um, and decided, hey, why don't I just take four months? make a small game, and just see if I can pay my bills, basically. Um, and yeah, so two years later, still at it. So you can then testify that LinkedIn is not entirely useless. No, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't speak to overall its usefulness, but for me, it was uh, it worked out really well. So your first job was on an iOS game, and I know that Militia is on iOS. Was it Militia original? Was, was it... Uh, initially an ios game or was it something you did for the pc and ported was it in tandem development 
Yeah, so I published it for Android first, actually. Uh, Ew. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and that was just because uh, I'd kind of worked with Android and iOS, and I knew that the the barrier to entry was very uh, low. Like you can self-publish on there, and it's it's right. From from my perspective, it's easier to do than uh, to publish on iOS. Um, and I was kind of just experimenting with, like, hey, are there any ways to um, actually do this and um, as a as a real job and not just as a hobby? So I was kind of experimenting with. Um, uh, I had uh, in-app I had an in-app purchase in there on Android, and I had uh, ads and an in-app purchase to remove the ads. And I was kind of experimenting with like monetization strategies and seeing if I could, you know, get my foot in the door that way. Um, on Android, but then uh, yeah, a couple months later, uh, I think a friend encouraged me to just post the game Militia on Steam Greenlight, um, and I kind of wasn't sure that I'd be able to get through or or what, but um, yeah, got in there and uh, it was great. Now this was 2015. Yes. Wow, Brett. So man, I have a million questions. Then uh, <laughs> this being in the this is like the heyday of the glut of indie games like anybody who is like you who quits mm. his day job and just wants to make a, a modest game with a sort of a clever design but no flashy production values is basically i would tell that person don't do it you're going to get swallowed up in the indies you don't stand a chance i would I be cynical about it yeah exactly you must have heard a lot about that so what what happened like why am i now talking to a guy who has made four games in two years well i think a couple things have happened one thing is that i i try to well, it's kind of with the initial initial project. I gave myself four months, right? And ever since then, I still try to scope small. I try to make the games have as much value as I can possibly pack into them, obviously, and have the highest production values that I can give them and be interesting for as long as they can be interesting for, et cetera, et cetera. But I try to uh, have ideas and, and, and design in such a way that I can actually create the thing and finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But and I've always kind of been that way, just generally. Um, I'm kind of an editor at heart, I guess. So it's very easy for me to trim things, um, and and I think that kind of comes through in the minimalist aesthetic of a lot of the sure. brand games. Now, did you do much to promote Militia? Like, why? How does Militia get to uh, my ears? Like, what? What did you <laughs> do? Great to question. Me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder how you heard about Militia first, because um, definitely. Uh, like I'm a programmer by trade, um, and I'm a game designer by heart, and I'm kind of a marketer um, by force. Uh, okay. Like I would definitely not be—it's not my first love. Um, and I'm just learning about PR and marketing as I go, basically. And I, I'm sure I could be doing a much better job of it. Um, but basically, I just read whatever I could about indie wisdom and uh, marketing and reaching out and all that kind of thing, and just tried to do everything. So I, I don't try to cleverly pick what I think will be the best strategy or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just do every single thing that somebody um, <laughs> suggests, and that that is within my budget, kind of thing. And then you know, see what sticks. Um, so I, is, I'd be curious to know how you heard about militia though in the first place. But uh, let's see, uh, word of mouth. Someone yeah. I know, uh, I'm uh, someone I know who's like part of the online community for for my site brought up militia at some point and i looked at screenshots uh which you know that's sort of the easiest that's the first response when you hear about something is look at screenshots Mm -hmm. if that doesn't grab you move on Uh, i looked at the screenshots and kind of wondered well this looks awfully minimalist what Mm -hmm. what could possibly be interesting about this so then you look a little bit at the design uh and ultimately for me i love asymmetry like when things are dramatically different from each other in the context of a simple rule set, that right there gets my attention, and that's a lot of what's going on with militia. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So it was. It was just sort of that somebody mentioned it. I looked at the screenshots. It made me curious, and lo and behold, you know, it's something that I was like, oh well, I like this. And then when the next thing comes out, and it's oh, the guys that did militia, and I even think guys plurally, like you're, you're also a bit of an anomaly too, in that you're kind of a one man operation. Um, right. Uh, yeah. For Axis and Acres and Skyboats, uh, I had a partner working with me doing design mm-hmm. and some of the marketing stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. uh, before and since then, uh, it's been just me. So but, I'm uh, curious. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean by the uh, minimalist graphic kind of suggesting that maybe there's some other thing going on there. Like I know for myself personally, like 
I've become a bit suspicious of when a game looks too pretty. Right. <laughs> um, because uh, a lot of times um, that'll be all that's there, right? Yeah. Uh, because you can get away with it. If your game is gorgeous, um, people will buy it regardless of what the um, underlying game design principles or, or, or whatever there are. Yeah. So if, if there's a game that's really ugly and people are digging it, <laughs> it's like, well, what's going on here? Right. So, it's like, yeah, it's, it's it's like, you know, handsome people don't have to try as hard. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I am curious then as far as the success of your four games, uh, can you talk a little bit about has each been more successful than the other? Is this a forward moving, is this a sort of a graph that is going up a slope where each game sells more copies than the other? Uh, it's been relatively consistent. Um, the... Uh, like at this by this point, uh, Accident Acres and Militia have had about the same level of success, mm-hmm. um, and the other two games are sort of Skyboats and Mono Stratigos are kind of ramping up, um, but at a, at a similar pace to the first two. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I can tell, it's just more that they haven't been out as long. Um, but so so no missteps, like nothing like where okay I need to do a course correction. Like this this is working out for you, I guess. Yeah, I, th- I think um, if anything, I think. Uh, uh, well, just like what you're talking about with the minimalist aesthetic, um, Skyboats was a little bit less so like that. Um, it has kind of its own, maybe more generic video gamey type aesthetic. Um, and I think, from what I can tell, um, that sort of detracted from the amount that it stands out from the rest of the games on Steam or, or other games that you might see wherever. Sure. Um, so for Minos Stratigos, the next game, I kind of... Uh, sharply pulled back from that and went right back to the hyper minimalist militia aesthetic um, to kind of experiment and see whether that was the case. Um, but yeah, uh, just generally, I try each game to see each game as uh, a game unto itself, but also I try to experiment in different ways, try new things, see what works, what doesn't, that kind of thing. So it's clear from looking at uh, Militia, Axis and Acres, and Minos Strategos, those all have the same kind of uh, – not engine. Well, yeah, engine. They're all on a checkerboard. They're all little pieces that you move around at places on the board. Um, Skyboats is – Hexes, it's its own thing. But Solar Settlers, which I'd like to talk about now, it's a game that is out the day that this podcast is posting. For yeah. you, you're two days out from your release, and we're talking right now. Uh that's dramatically different from all of the other four. Yeah. What were you thinking? Yeah, well, that's the thing, especially after we just talked about Skyboats kind of being the outlier that way. Um, but um, I don't know. I've kind of always wanted to make a space game. I, I think that's just kind of like a rite of passage for the game industry, maybe. Um, yeah, but uh, I've always been super interested in, in space and stuff. And uh, like I said, I was a big StarCraft fan. Um mm-hmm growing up and uh one of my favorite board games is race for the galaxy um so this is kind of solo settlers is part of at least in part uh, a love letter to race for the galaxy in some way sure um but yeah when you when i now that i've chosen space as a theme early on in the project um there's a lot of resources available uh in terms of art aesthetics knowledge uh of how to make it look a certain way or whatever um, out there because lots of people have made space games. So I was able to draw on that a bit um, and maybe keep uh, a minimalist, uh, I don't know, overall backing or, or something like that, but experiment with a little bit more high production value, eye-catching, screenshotty type stuff. See where this takes me. Now you're also leaning much more heavily on the idea of, of card play, which has always been a part of... Uh, I guess there's nothing like that in Militia, but but certainly with Axis and Acres, uh, Minos Strategos with the moves that come out, there's this idea of drawing from a, a deck of cards. That right. that seems much more explicit in Solar Settlers, uh, right. even just visually, the, the, just the mechanical feel of what you're doing feels like putting a card on top of another card or flipping a right. card over. Uh, so obviously, this is something that you're wanting to surface as well, is this idea of card play. One of One of my... We talked a little bit when you were releasing Axis and Acres, and one of my issues with that was it, it wasn't clear that you were actually only dealing with like six, you know, five or six cards in your deck. I was right. sort of assuming it was a big deck. So card play is something that you've always fiddled with. It's something I think you're making more explicit 
in Solar Settlers, right? Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm a huge board game fan, um, mm-hmm. and sort of part of my ethos with Bring Good Games is translating board games both to the digital format, but also from multiplayer to single player, um, and just seeing where that takes me game design wise. Um, but yeah, cards cards do a lot of good things for you. First of all, it's just very exciting to draw cards because um, there's sort of a limitless possibility to a deck that you don't know about. Um, and even if you have played with a deck for a long time, sort of the order things come out and keep things fresh for a long time. Um, also, the other nice thing about cards specifically is that um, it, it's difficult to market a game as deep or having longevity or depth or, or, or whatever you want to say strategically. But if you say that your game has a lot of cards in it, um, it, it kind of communicates that uh, right off the bat without having to go into too much detail. Because mm-hmm. um, people kind of understand that like there's some meat that they can dig into just in terms of understanding the cards and their interactions and how that all works. Um, uh, so they kind of get a sense for what you're going for in terms of depth of strategy um, without you having to just say this I'm going for depth of strategy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's kind of a, yeah, it definitely implies a certain kind of game that people are familiar with and they appreciate the value of cards. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah now, and I'm a big fan of card games as well, so. Yeah. Now, now I, for instance, playing Solar Settlers, uh, which we'll get a little bit into the weeds about it because I'm fascinated with some of the things you're doing with it. But when I'm playing Solar Settlers, uh, it, it's not a game that... I don't know if Race for the Galaxy. There's a there's a video game port of Race for the Galaxy hmm. that also doesn't show you what's in your deck. When you sit down to play a real game of Race for the Galaxy on the tabletop, you can flip through the cards. You can see, okay, right. these are the things that might come out. And if you want to get super analytical, you can count, like, okay, this is the number of green planets. This is the number of yellow planets. You can get a sense for distribution like that. Yeah. When you play the board game port of Race for the Galaxy, I don't think she's given you any mechanism for, for that. All of that is under the hood. You just have to learn the cards as they come out. There's no card catalog or collection index. Right, right. Now, another way to approach that is a game, and I, I think I mentioned this to you, called Age of Rivals, which is a card-based game, and you start with a certain number of cards, and as you play, there's an unlocking mechanism. You're doing something similar in Solar Settlers that right. add cards to your collection that increases the breadth of possibility. In an Age of Rivals, it's always you always have access to a complete database of all the unlocked cards. Does one approach or the other seem preferable to you? I think that for – at least when I learned Race for the Galaxy, I think the best user experience that you can kind of have or player experience, you probably wouldn't be flipping through the deck or at least not carefully analyzing the deck before you play your first time. I think right. it's ideal when you play for your first few matches to just kind of uh, start up, play by feel, and see what comes out and kind of have that joy of – discovering the cards as you draw them in uh-huh. in, in the course of play. Um, but as you're kind of alluding to, I think uh, as you get more experience with a game, like Race for the Galaxy or Solar Settlers or Age of Rivals, um, I think it's uh, probably a good thing for players to have access to the, the card catalog uh, as a resource. Um, or in terms of the more fiddly mechanics of how um, the cards come out on the board or, or what have you. Um, I think as you kind of get past a certain threshold of skill with the game. You want to start of ex- start exploring those things to a greater detail, and mm-hmm. um, I think the players should probably have access to a resource like that in some fashion or another. Especially since, if they really wanted to, um, I'm sure they could figure it out over time. Um, so yeah, it's just about where, where in the player experience to um, have that so people don't feel obligated to analyze the deck. Before right. they play their first time, so I, I'm with you there, and I, I don't. I, I'm probably an outlier in this, but I'm with you in that you play through the first few times, and you're learning a game. Just let the cards happen. Enjoy yeah. that sense of discovery. Like, oh, cool, this can happen, and that can happen, and there's this powerful card. Uh, but uh, I, I'm weird in that once I've played one or two times. I want to know everything. Mm-hmm. I want to bang on the system. I want to open the back of the watch and look at the gears and figure out how it works. Uh, 
there was a, a solitaire card game that just came out in the last few months called The Lost Expedition. Do you mm-hmm. by any chance have you heard of this? I haven't heard of that, no. It is pretty straightforward. It's just a, a solo game where you're trying to work your way along a path to find El Dorado. It's like an explorer's game in the 19th century, and you can deal with things like a wildlife attacks you, and you can get disease and run out of supplies, those sorts of things. What you're basically trying to do is progress along a path, and a certain right. number of cards push you down that path. A lot of the other cards are obstacles that you have to prevail against. I played a few times, and it's a deck of uh, 56, 54 cards. Uh, 56, sorry. I played a few times, and then after losing like three times and thinking, okay, this is cool, I want to play it more, I immediately sat down and divided all the cards into piles. Like I wanted to know, out of these 56 cards, how many would push me forward? And it's 17 of them, and I wanted to know that. Yeah. Playing it, so so I'm I I think I might be an outlier in that when I play Solar Settlers, I want to know exactly what cards are in there. Like it kind of frustrates me, mm-hmm. and I realize this is more of a me thing. You've made your choice as a designer, but it kind of frustrates me to not be able to look in there and know the exact distribution of cards to help yeah. me inform uh, decisions. Uh, well, so go yeah. ahead, sorry. Yeah, it's interesting. I I mean I definitely intend to have a card viewer collection thing in the game at some point. Um, and it'll probably be unlock at a certain rank or something like that. So that, like I'm saying, it doesn't hamper the new player experience in some way. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not, um, I guess, uh, ethically against <laughs> having like a card viewer in there or something right. like that. Um, and I think that that's an advantage that like traditional card games have in a certain ways is, is that players are so familiar with the 52 card deck of normal playing cards Right. That any card game that you learn, you can kind of like you already have that in your back pocket, right? Like you know how many clubs there are, and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, having said that, uh, in Solar Settlers, I have a big Excel spreadsheet uh, of the different like card types, yep. or like how yep. many how many um, how many cards produce colonists, how many cards are rock worlds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I try to make sure that um, I kind of respect the sort of um, imagined deck that players might uh, have uh, as they just start to learn the game. So you wouldn't want it to be the case, for example, like where there, there are four different types of worlds in, in Solar Settlers. There's jungle worlds, rock worlds, water worlds, and gas worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wouldn't want to have it so rock worlds were twice as common in, in the draw deck, in my opinion. Because players, I think, kind of sub, subconsciously or consciously assume that there will be a relatively similar amount of each type of card, mm-hmm. unless there's some way, some way that the game is indicating to you that that's not the case. Um, so I try to respect those, um, I guess, uh, assumptions that players might have subconsciously or consciously, um, and keep those things as balanced as I can. Sure. Now, when I when I play Solar Settlers, there are those four worlds. Uh, is the game cheating in any way to ensure? distribution of those four worlds because like right off the bat i definitely want a jungle world for oxygen and i need a gas world for hydrogen uh does the does the i'm assuming that the solar settlers cheats my initial draw to make sure i get one of those i get both of those right off the bat is that true yes i believe that the the explorer deck is initially seated with two gas worlds two jungle worlds two water worlds two rock worlds and two open space tiles if mm-hmm. i remember correctly um and those are shuffled up uh, those ten cards are shuffled up, and those will be drawn in order before you draw other cards from exploration. So you are kind of okay. So you're kind of building a deck for the player experience, I guess, the same way that there are only certain cards in those three, five, and eight military spaces. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's the kind of thing where um, you would definitely notice it if it wasn't there. Right. Um, in in right, some early right. playtesting things, uh, like early paper prototypes and stuff that I had. Um, uh, especially there was, I think I was 50-50 open space and regular worlds. Right. And, <laughs> I can uh, imagine how that went. Yeah, well, it's quite frustrating to get open space, you know, even twice in a row. Um, uh, yeah, because, like, that's just clearly not what you're looking for. How, like, however, the game keys mechanically off a whole uh, open space in a number of ways. So you want to have some of that in there. But, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to keep pretty tight controls over, like, the kind of range of player experiences that can happen. Um, while still, what you one of the main advantages of cards is that you can have this incredibly diverse set of experiences, right? Um, 
So I try to find the right balance there. Um, but between, yeah, the randomization of the Explorer deck, and uh, there's just a lot of player and deep space cards now. So there's quite a bit of variance in the number of different game states you can have. I do appreciate that that's something that you as a video game designer can do that a board game designer couldn't as easily yeah. do. Like if Solar Settlers was a tabletop game, the setup would be a huge pain in the ass to have to like <laughs> see these cards on the top and then these right. cards and then set these aside for the military spaces and, and I'm building this deck for this race. Uh, that's true. So that, that's something that as board games are going digital, we can enjoy designs like yours that wouldn't be feasible on a tabletop. Uh, I'm very interested in that uh, design space mm-hmm. of where what sorts of things because I'm very in, I, I'm I'm very attracted to board game aesthetics of like simplicity, clarity, um, I, and I like it when the player knows all the rules to the game or at least the vast majority of them so that they can make informed decisions strategically. Right. Um, but I'm very interested in like you're saying the advantages that you get when you take that aesthetic and translate it to a digital medium. Um, you, there's all kinds of different things that can, you, uh, new tools that you have, new play experiences that you can make, um, and that sort of thing, um, that kind of blend those two things. And I think that's very, like, super interesting. Now, I want to talk also, because this is something that I feel is, um, well, if I look over the five games that you've done, Militia starts out, like, Militia has an abstraction to it, but there's a lot of imaginative theming and as far as like this is what a warrior chit does this is what right. a wizard chit does like it, it the, the mechanics are very abstract but you take pains to theme everything uh axis right. and acres similarly with the dice and how hunter dice do this and priest dice do that there's a lot of great theming skyboats gets a little weird because <laughs> like I'm, I'm basically using bananas and asparagus to determine wind <laughs> patterns like that yeah that there's a sort of a whimsical playfulness in that, but it right. it's a very different approach, and that's I know kind what you of mean. weird. Yeah. And then Minos Strategos gets back to being way more abstract, I think, than your other things, in that it's mm-hmm. it's about laying these patterns on the board, and, and the name yeah. of the pattern doesn't always – it kind of just doesn't make sense. Like, okay, this is called a bomb, and that's called a charge or whatever. I can kind of see what you're getting at, but the theming seems to take a little bit more of a backseat to the abstraction. Right. So now we come to Solar Settlers – yeah. Uh, and let's talk. Let me first have you say in your own words, where do you stand as you're coming to Solar Settlers as far as how abstract do I want to be? How much theming do I want? Where where am I going to meet on that continuum? Right. So uh, it's probably clear by now, um, but I sort of take a mechanical, a bottom-up mechanical approach yep. to game design in general. Um, and a big part of what uh, of, of how I see theme is a, um, allowing people to kind of get interested in what you're doing. Um, and even for myself, like uh, uh, oftentimes theme will be what draws me to a game initially. Um, but also, you can get a long way with theme helping to explain how your mechanics work. Um, I think the theme is like a really good tool in terms of like helping people learn the rules, remember the rules, and sort of kind of get a little bit more invested in, in what's going on. Um, like for example, like in Solar Settlers, you can run out of oxygen for your for your colonists on the board. Um, so uh, what you're really doing is removing your little actors from the board, your units, right? But it's themed as your colonists that you're supposed to protect are suffocating, right? <laughs> right. So that has like a much stronger visceral implication <laughs> than just like, oh, my red discs. I have to remove those or, or, right. or what have you. Um, so yeah, I, I, I tend to see theme to a greater or lesser extent as a way to help me create the affordances and to explain the mechanics that otherwise might be really hard to explain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and certain themes have a greater or less lesser uh, richness in that way to help out. Uh, I... I, I think that uh, the theming you've done in Solar Cellars is uh, easily the, the best that you've done so far. Like I, That's one of the things I adore about Solar Settlers is learning the mechanics and then seeing how in the context of these simple mechanics, and I think at the head of the podcast, this is kind of what was going on with Militia, in the context of these simple mechanics, you're expressing these really cool, distinct themes. Right. Uh, 
one of the ways you do that is you've got – is it four or five races ultimately in Solar Settlers? Uh, there are five races. Five races. So you start with just the humans, which is what anybody would do in a space game. The right. moment you're playing, you play the vanilla humans. Uh, I don't know what the last two races are, hmm. and I think I'm not supposed to yet uh, because they're kind of locked behind this advancement. Right. Um, so tell me then about your approach to advancement because when I play – it's really thrilling to discover that first reptile race and then to wonder – or no, I guess – yeah, yeah, the insects you discover first. And then you're wondering, okay, well, what's the next race? Uh, you're keeping a lot of these cool theming things close to the vest like right, early right. on. You're hiding them from me, and I want them. Uh, <laughs> what's your philosophy there? Why can't I jump in and immediately play whatever that fifth race is? Right. So I, like I said, I, I kind of come from a board game background. Uh, game design wise right so i'm very used to a game just giving you everything right from the outset um <laughs> and you just learn the rules and the 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 joy of the play is developing your strategy over repeated plays most of the time right mm-hmm. um and it's not so much that you're working towards something on a meta level i guess right. um, having said that nowadays in board games they're getting into that more and more with pandemic legacy and that sort of thing mm-hmm. um where there's hidden information that's um revealed to you over the course of several plays. Um, and that's been hugely su- successful in the board game sphere at this point, um, which is kind of an interesting backporting of a video game sort of aesthetic yeah, back right. to board games. Right. Um, yeah, so it's really interesting to see that working out. Um, but yeah, so um, my background is board games, so I'm used to the give the player everything at once. And, and in Militia, for example, like, there's, uh, you unlock different units and different um, enemies as you advance up the ladder, but uh, the intention of that wasn't so much a unlockable type thing. It's more of a, uh, t- a tutorializing type of uh, thing where yep. uh, I don't want to overload the player with all the different player units and all the different enemy types right at the outset. So they slowly unlock over time to kind of meet out that complexity slower. Um, having said that, I think a lot of games, uh, especially nowadays, are using unlockables not only as uh, complex, like a complexity filter, but also like as the carrot that'll keep you <laughs> playing, right? For, for it's, a, it's a psychological tool, basically. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so I come at the games. Uh, I come at the games that I design uh, to make them intrinsically interesting, so that um, yeah, so you're, you're inco- uncovering depth of strategy and such as you play. Um, but um, more and more I have players, I had players requesting more meta, unlockable content, um, sorts of things, to keep you coming back to the game and playing it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even though it, it, it's very interesting, like, if you, like, break it down on a human psychological level or whatever. But I find this even for myself, like, I might have a lot of fun playing uh, Hearthstone or something, right? Uh, if I were going to play right now, but without uh, booster packs or the daily quests or something like that, um, I might not go back and play it. So it, it, it's like it's almost like the game designers are just giving you a little, like almost a, uh, an excuse that you can tell yourself, a rationale of why you will go back and play this game. Like, well, I really need to unlock the next set of card packs or whatever it is and that's why i'm going to play whereas really you're playing for the intrinsic value of of the game now do you mind that like as a designer as someone who's created what what would work just fine as a standalone not a tabletop game but as a standalone strategy game do you feel hobbled or obligated by that dynamic are you okay with that yes well i think uh when i was younger and more hot-headed i might have been uh, more (laughs) Irritated by that kind of thing, but really, I'm interested in in overall in making things that people enjoy. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not in this for some pure artistic whatever reason where I want to create my vision and that's it. And to heck with you if you don't like it. I, I, I'm interested in making things that people will play and enjoy. So, um, I I just see it as a process of continual improvement on my part. Like if if I just try like this seems like a thing that people want in their games, and so I'm going to try my best to deliver that. 
even right. if it's something that I don't have a ton of experience with or knowledge about or whatever. I'm, I'm going to try to meet people in the middle wherever I can. Uh, I will say that uh, like, like it certainly works for me, and I love that about I, – I, I was kind of being facetious. I don't mind at all that you've yeah. locked up those four races, and it right. helps me a lot, Brett. Like it, I already want to play Solar Settlers, and it just reinforces that. Right, uh, yeah. So that there that's are other examples. Thing. Yeah, yeah, and that and that that that's a great balance of it. There are examples. There's a there's a free to play game with a Marvel license called Marvel Heroes Online, and it's a Diablo kind of clone where you run around, you level up your dudes, and it's just really glib and there's not much to it. But the right. only reason I want to play it is because my Spider Man is level three, and if I play it. He'll become level four. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And it's not because I'm necessarily enjoying the moment to moment, just running around making all these crazy particle effects happen as he does random punches or whatever. It's just that psychological get him to the next number, fill that experience point bar, unlock the next skill, and it overcomes. Like it's like the designers don't even have to design a game. Just just right. build that dynamic, that psychological dynamic, and people show up because it works. Right. Uh, now that said uh, I also notice when that's not there, and it is a really good game. And an example I want to bring up, uh, it was in Early Access for a while, a game that came out last week, which is a, a video game, board game. And it's for two players. He does a great job using the unique advantages of a video game, and it's a little indie game called Anti-Hero. And uh, the, the players are leading thieves guilds and they're fighting over control of a little sort of a steampunky city and it's a really good game but when you start it up everything is there under your fingertips there's nothing to unlock there is no progression all the tools are there the moment you play uh and it it it's just it stands out like I I love the game but I play it and I feel like it, every time it resets to zero and that's obviously his design decision. He wanted something elegant that didn't have a bunch of pieces you had to unlock, and it works, but it's conspicuous for, for not having unlockables, and that's a little weird, and it's a little sad that a, a standalone, self-contained, basically airtight design somehow feels less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think especially in the video game sphere, Yeah. I, I think that's it's more or less expected at this point. That you have some sort of – at least some sort of progression – uh, or achievements or something to work towards um, outside the match-to-match gameplay. Um, yeah. One of one of the things that you have done, uh, because when I talk about getting my Spider-Man from level 3 to level 4, and even though that's kind of pointless, that does push you forward, uh, I think this was even in Militia, you level up a player's difficulty, right? Right. Yeah, this is one of the... Uh, I got this idea from Keith Bergen. Uh, who's an indie game designer who made Auro, um, which is a great tactics game, and people should play it. Um, Spell that for yeah, me. Uh, A-U-R-O. Okay. Um, yeah, people should definitely look that up. Uh, and yeah, it, it sort of inspired me to make my own games in a certain way, um, or at least in terms of what games I wanted to make right out of, right out of the gate. Um, so yeah, Auro has this single-player ELO idea, and and... It's in all the Brengo games as well now. And the idea is that you play, the game is played in matches, the same as you would in a multiplayer game like Dota or League of Legends or StarCraft or, or whatever. Um, and in those games, you have an MMR system, right? So as you play, you get matched up with players that are hopefully uh, of equal skill to you. Um, and as you improve or, or get worse at the game, um, the it'll match you up with opponents that are appropriate for you so that the game you have challenging, interesting matches all the time. Rather than... It might be fun to totally crush someone um, once or twice. Um, and it might be... It, it's even enjoyable to lose um, really badly occasionally uh, because you can learn a lot from that. Mm -hmm. But overall, you, uh, I at least, and I think most players prefer when they feel like they have a fighting chance in each match um, and they can have a, a, a tight, close game experience. So... Uh, Keith Bergen come up, came up with this idea of the single-player ladder. So it works the same way as multiplayer MMR. Um, as you win the game, uh, you'll rank up in the game, and it'll become more difficult. And as you lose, 
uh, you'll rank down in the game, and it'll become less difficult. And so the game kind of scales the difficulty to you as you play. Um, so you don't, And the other benefit of that is, uh, well, there's two main benefits. And one is that the game doesn't ar- uh, kind of arbitrarily, artificially end or get old um, because the difficulty can continue to increase or, or, mm-hmm. or track you as, as you get better or worse. Um, and the other benefit is that you don't have to select a difficulty uh, to start out with, because uh, this has happened to me in many games. Uh, as you boot it up and it asks you whether you want to play on hell mode or uh, <laughs> bloody or you know whatever it is, and I, I I've never played your game before, so I have no idea what, what mode I want to play. I guess I'll play on normal or hard or something. Or you know, it, it's hard. It's actually it's impossible to know which one of those will be the best play experience for you. So I basically wherever I can, I try to take those decisions out of the player's hands and say I have that I can I'll I'll manage the difficulty for you don't worry about it all you need to do is play and have a good time Brett you know what that's called that's called and and I'm hugely old and grumpy and harumphy about this but what you just <laughs> described is called doing your job as a game designer <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah that's right I, I cannot tell you how much I resent when I am asked before I've even played a game to tune the difficulty. That right. is not my job, and I know right. game designers don't understand. Like they need to make games that people can play of all skill levels, but that's not my problem. That's their problem. That's and true. when it is dumped in my lap, I kind of resent it. Uh, right, and, and and that extends beyond um, even difficulty levels uh, in particular. Like. Uh, an example that I come back to a lot is Civilization. And there are a lot of great things about Civilization. Um, but one of the things in that game is that if you play a, if you load up Civ right now and, and start a custom match, there are, I don't even know how many, uh, tens, <laughs> dozens and dozens of options that you can select in terms of whether you want to play on an archipelago or right. a huge map or chieftain or whatever. You want aggressive AI. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. Who, who knows? Like, I, I have no idea what I want to play. And maybe if I've played Civilization for hundreds or thousands of hours or what have you, I might have an idea of certain things that I want to try out, right? But especially as a new player or an intermediate player even, it's really, I agree with you, it's on the game designer to uh, guess at and try to provide the best experience for the players out of the box without them having to tweak a whole bunch of knobs to get started. And it doesn't help me, by the way, civilization, when you offer me the chance to do a quick play. I don't know what that means. I don't know right, what I'm yeah. going to be dumped into. I, right. That's just even worse. I'm going in blind. Uh, no such thing as civilization quick play. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is not that's true. <laughs> uh, but I do understand that is, that's got to be immensely difficult for developers. And I just I think I've been playing games long enough that I can afford to be a grumpy old man about that one aspect of it. <laughs> being asked. I, agree, I agree with you about that. Yeah. That's why uh, in, in Brinky Games, I always, I've stuck to this for all of them. On the main menu, there's a learn button that you can play if you've never played before. It's very mm-hmm. clear that that's what you should do first. And then there's a play button. And the play button is what you will hit when you want to play. Um, and I, I, I try to stick with that for every game. Like On the main menu, all you need to do to play your first match is to hit play. And that's it. So another thing that I will uh, nerd rage about, and especially with board games, uh, is well-written rules. If you have gone to the trouble of designing a cool game, that is half of the battle. The other half of the battle is teaching me that design. It doesn't do me any good if you've made the most brilliant game in the world if you can't express to me how to play that game. Uh, And there's kind of an art to writing rules in board games, certainly an art to teaching it. And that's that's a challenge for board games because the designer can't be there to really hold your hand. He can't craft for you a new user experience necessarily that's different from the normal experience. Sometimes, like, Fantasy Flight will include a separate manual that's, hey, learn to play, and that has its own problems. Um, You've come a long way, because I remember booting up Axis and Acres (laughs) and being completely flummoxed, fascinated but flummoxed at at what was going on. Uh, And when I play now, by the way, it comes back to me pretty quickly, but I remember, oh, yeah, this stuff is pretty non-intuitive in certain Mm -hmm. ways. Uh, How much of that is a matter of you – Making easier designs, and how much of that is a matter of you getting better at teaching your designs? I think it's a lot of both, and, and I certainly remember that being the case with Axes and Acres. Uh, Militia uh, has a tutorial that worked for the most part for most players, um, but Militia is a, compared to Axes and Acres, Militia is just a much simpler game mm-hmm. um, to teach. Um, so I think I kind of was spoiled by that. Um, 
And then when we made Axes and Acres, the tutorial did not work well enough. It did not do its job well enough. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, you were you were involved closely, actually, helping us to tweak the tutorial, the original tutorial that we shipped at launch. Um, but even that one, the one that we got to there, wasn't really cutting it. Um, and we've actually gone back since and redone the whole Axis and Acres tutorial um, in the new Brain Good Game style that I've developed for teaching. Um, but yeah, I think basically uh, after Axis and Acres launched and, and people were having a hard time learning it, um, I kind of took a big step back and, and played a whole bunch of uh, indie games and just looked at the tutorials and non-indie games and just saw how people were teaching things and even complex rule sets um, and and tried to cobble together a better way of doing it. Um, and uh, getting at your question, um, I, I think that Solar Settlers is maybe slightly simpler than Axes and Acres overall, but it might not even be. It, it, it's pretty close in terms of complexity, um, but I think we've come a long way in terms of teaching uh Teaching technology, I guess you could say, um, and and people seem to have been picking it up a lot easier. I, I will say that knowing how to play Axis and Acres uh, helps in Solar Settlers because I see some of the same. Even though they're they're disguised with a different visual presentation, uh, they have the sci-fi theming. I can see some of the same elements in there. Sure. I feel like having played Axis and Acres helps me play Solar Settlers. Yeah. Uh, what are what are some of those elements? Oh, just as far as uh, like ha- having to move the pieces around on the board, sure. uh, having to kind of pay attention to when they activate, uh, right. the weird things about um, y- y- you know whether there's like one settler or more. I guess it's just this idea of the way that pieces interact with the board being the rule yeah. set. Like this right. piece here will do this this way or that way. Um, right. And it was similar. Like you know what? Maybe it's just that. When they're dice in Axis and Acres, you expect dice, you roll them, and then you look at the result, and the dice you scoot it out of the way and implement the result. Whereas right. the dice in Axis and Acres, they're also your playing pieces, so right. that's a little weird. It's much more explicit with this little person-shaped piece is a person. You know, you move right. him around, and he activates the planet, and he that's matches true. the icon on the planet that says, hey, here's the icon, here's the colon that represents – afterwards what the icon is going to do um but things like food like needing food you need food to spawn your guys on the board in axis and acres you need oxygen to keep your guys alive you need the hydrogen to move them around um i can basically just tell this is the designer who made axis and acres (laughs) right 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 yeah Um, that's cool it's nice to have a little bit of like a, a flair i guess it it is the the brett lowey atmosphere <laughs> flavor yeah cool cool Great. Uh, so uh, so you're we're a couple of days out from release yeah. uh, how are things crazy could you like push the button now and feel okay with it are you going to have a harried couple of days what are things looking like for you right now yeah well right now i'm just trying to find the balance between implementing the things that i want to put in the game um, like the things i've suggested or that i've seen uh, small tweaks or polish things or uh, whatever, whatever there is left on the the to do list, um, and so trying to find a balance between that and keeping the game as stable as possible, bug wise for launch, um, and that's always kind of the balancing act. Uh, like I did another update today to Solar Settlers with a bunch of new features, and I probably went too far and did too much. <laughs> I kind of like to hear that though. Like that makes me excited. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, uh, for all the Bringa games, I, I, I try to support them as long as people are playing them um, in terms of having new updates and new content and bug fixes and new features that people want or, or whatever. So it's not like um, Solar Settlers will be uh, all of the game that it ever will be on launch day, but I, I do want to have it be as much of a complete package as I can be, as it can be. Now, uh, uh, S- Solar Settlers is... Um uh, so, so when it comes out on on uh, Wednesday, uh, you, you obviously you, you don't do like DLC. You don't do early access. Like right. you seem to want to put it out, and this is it. This is the whole package. Uh, I'm not withholding things um, yet. You have all sorts of options here. That's one of the things, by the way, that cards offer. It's yeah. super easy to sell an add-on and. Yeah. 
there's a company, Fantasy Flight, that just makes a business model. Like this is how they operate yeah. is they just print more cards to fold into the gameplay mechanics. Right. And oftentimes it's to the detriment of the game they've designed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so clearly you're not being abusive because you're really not even making much of a to-do about it. But you could get away with doing things like, hey, I'm selling DLC, yeah. but you haven't. Why not? I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I think it might be I, – I just like – I. There's some romantic idea about selling somebody a game, <laughs> and they pay for it up front with dollars, and then they have the whole game forever. <laughs> and maybe, maybe, yeah, you can call me uh, old school or romantic or whatever, but I just really like that model of giving players everything. <laughs> um, having said that, it's not like I'm completely against the idea of having DLC. Um, uh, Paradox is another example of a company that does a really good job with a lot of DLC. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it would just have to be the right fit, I think. Um, also, there, there's some concerns about splitting your player base. I think um, I, I like to have people uh, playing the same game um, so that they can talk about it and communicate and share experiences and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's easier to do, I think, when uh, um, there, there's no uh, crazy additional content behind paywalls um having said that who knows like like i say like for each bring a game i try to experiment in some way so that might be an experiment in the future uh you also haven't done uh, early access you're talking about wanting to make sure to get bugs out of there what right. what you could do brett is just release it whenever call it early access and take your time fi- uh fixing the bugs why yeah. aren't you doing that well that would probably be a heck of a lot less stressful um yeah, I'm not sure. I, I, that's probably a good idea, honestly. I'm actually, <laughs> I didn't mean to enough. encourage you. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm somebody who steers clear of early access, so no, don't, don't do that. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, that, that, that is sort of part of the same thing, where I want to make sure that on launch day, people have a, can have a reasonable expectation of like, no, this is the complete experience. You're getting the real deal. This is like exa- what the developer intended, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing. Right. Um, do, do people ask you much, uh, hey – why don't you put multiplayer in this? Yeah, I, yeah, I get that all the time actually, and I do want to make a, a multiplayer brink a game, uh, at someday. Um, mostly that's a logistical issue more than anything. Uh, in, well, in two different ways. Um, one way is just technically, right? There's a lot of like server code or or peer to peer or whatever. However, I implement it that way. And then the other way is just you have to have a certain critical mass of players, I think, to um sustain that sort of thing because if you log into a multiplayer game and there's nobody playing it uh that can be a a kind of a bad player experience but so then it's like maybe you need to have a single player mode alongside the multiplayer mode and at that point you're kind of designing two games at once right and and the the games you've designed so far have clearly been uh a best case scenario for solitaire games in that i'm playing a strategy game against a system Right. And I, the system is kind of deterministic. I know what it's going to do and how it's going to do things. It's not an AI trying to imitate a human player. Right. Like I, I feel these are clearly solitaire, solo, single-player game designs yeah. that don't really have a hook for multiplayer. Uh, so. Yeah. yeah, so part of the reason for that, too, is um, that I guess that's sort of a game design ethos thing. Is, is In a lot of strategy games that I've seen that have AI players in them, um, you can kind. Of, this is sort of gets into the weeds a little bit, but you kind of the game becomes figuring out where the holes in the AI are, sure. rather than necessarily um, the kind of things that I want the games to be about, which is coming up with clever strategies or making cool plays or tactical decisions or long-term strategies, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like when you're trying to decide whether aggressive bot is going to attack your planet because he's aggressive, <laughs> um, that's sort of a different kind of thing. Um, and not exactly like uh, the kind of rule set decision making that I like from board games. Right. Um, so that's kind of where the AI, no brink of game AI so far comes from. Right. Uh, now, Brett, so uh, before I let you go, uh, you're into board games. Have you had time to play board games lately? <laughs> no, not in the last few weeks, <laughs> but I'm hoping to get back to them soon. Uh, if yeah, you we- had time, what would you be playing? Well, yeah, some of my favorite board games are, I, I love, like I was saying, I love Race for the Galaxy. That's one of my favorites of all time. It's probably the game that, board game that I've played the most. Um, I love Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, I love C- uh, Caverna. Um, all kinds of Euro games, basically. Um, Euro designer board games. Um, I'm 
very, very frequently browsing Board Game Geek, uh, watching board game video reviews, trying to decide which games to buy, playing with friends, all that kind of thing. Have you seen the Race for the Galaxy video game release? Yeah, yeah, I've noticed that, and it's definitely on my it's on my Steam wish list, and I'm looking forward to trying it out. I just as soon as I can get a spare moment. So, uh, what you know, there's an issue where it's clearly a multiplayer design. You play head to head, as as you know. Uh, right. She actually, someone had, as a kind of fan project, made an AI for it, and he yeah. he set up this kind of just rough front end uh and i imagine he probably talked to the developers but it it was he just kind of made an unauthorized ai for it and she kind of bought his ai for this commercial release uh and it shows by the way it's uh it's it's a a rare example of now i'm sure a lot of people who know the game well this might be you would play it and do that thing where you're talking about they're just trying to find the holes in the ai but for a casual guy like me the ai is fantastic and it's really nice to see that at work Uh, totally yeah well yeah it sort of it comes interesting too like in terms of like how do you scale difficulty up and down in a system like that yeah yeah say if you want to have multiple difficulty modes or a single player ladder or something like that so do you make the ai try to make the ai as good as you can like make the beat all humans for all time and then make it make mistakes or something right. or yep. uh, you know like it, it seems and then if it makes a mistake like it's sort of it's strange uh kind of deciding if that uh made or, or broke the game for it right like at that point like are you winning because you got lucky with the ai it, it just gets very convoluted and strange quickly um, yeah when yeah, a game like- is designed as a multiplayer experience and it has an ai yep. um I don't know. There's a lot of, lot of uh, game design complexity and baggage uh, that comes with that. And that's why you, yeah, you know, your your approach is you've got this system the player is fighting against, and the way you jigger the difficulty is here's the threshold it requires to reach for you to win to beat the scenario, and on the other hand, here's how much time you have to do it. And you're right. sort of narrowing those parameters, and you're letting the player's skill sort of flex where in those parameters his or her comfortable difficulty level is. Yeah. 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 I try to be very careful about that scaling um, in terms of making it not feel arbitrary um, and making it still, the game still test the same skills at high levels as it does at low levels, um, just to a greater or lesser degree. Um, yeah. The mechanics don't change. It's an, right. the, the AI doesn't have to make mistakes. Yeah. Right. And you're still trying to optimize and play the best as you can. Like, and your experience from low levels carries over to, your, to the higher levels. Like it's yeah. all, it's all the same game. It's just harder now. Right. <laughs> Whereas in a game, say, uh, the, the, the typical example is if you have a first person shooter, say, and you make the enemies have more HP, um, <laughs> that might completely change the, the correct strategy that you might be using for the game. It, it's actually a different game that you're playing at that point. Um, and it might not be as satisfying of a game um, as the one that the developers intended. Yeah, exactly. Because then it also might not – this great design you've created where maybe certain weapons and tools interact in different ways. If the player just turns the enemies down where they've all got one hit point or whatever, he's never going to see that design stuff. Right. Like all that – yeah, it's, it's again a matter of tuning your game. Yeah, it's like uh, the light machine gun only does one damage, but guess right. what? They all only have one health. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's as good as the shotgun all of a sudden. Right, right. Uh, all right, finally, Brett, here's something I want to ask you about. I can another thing that I don't envy game designers for <laughs> is coming up with a name. Right. What? Uh, okay, so Solar Settlers is what you arrived at. You yep. must have had to. I can imagine you must have had a list a mile long of options. Oh, Your yeah. favorite ones were probably taken. Uh, walk <laughs> me through the ordeal of thinking up a name for a science fiction game. Yeah. So what I like to do is have a, a whiteboard. Uh, I'm a big whiteboard guy, and I just write down everything, every word that I can possibly imagine that's related to the game, whether or not it would be a good part of a title or not, basically. Just, like, anything that's related or sounds cool or whatever. And then I have a huge list of words, and I try to combine those in interesting ways into titles. And eventually I kind of circle the ones that I like (laughs) of those titles, and I maybe end up with a list of 20 titles or something. And then, you know, over time, you kind of sleep on it and let it settle and give it get get some feedback from other people, narrow it down more and more. Um, and eventually, I try to get some more wide audience feedback by doing a couple polls and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of happy with the way this one turned out. I, I kind of like the name Solar Settlers. 
Um, now, I'm assuming it wasn't your first choice. Like, surely there was one you liked better that you couldn't use for, for whatever reason, right? Or actually, so- actually, this was my favorite one. Um, okay, good, but good. I, I did have uh, – somebody had suggested at some point Space Cards, <laughs> which is like a very <laughs> generic name. But it might have been like the perfect name. You know, it's kind of hard to tell with that kind of thing, uh, whether it's like genius or stupid. Right. Yeah, I don't think um, I would like space cards. That does sound too yeah. generic. Yeah. It's almost like, like, would it be? It, it's like, is it generic, or is it so generic that it's uh, enticing? You know, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's strange balance. But yeah, I had a, and I had a few more that I liked. Uh, Nova Frontier was on the list uh, as one of them ones that I liked late in the game. Um, but I think this one was just the most clear and the most repeatable, easiest to spell, that, that sort of thing. It's certainly like one word says science fiction. The other word right. says, you know, like the fun resource management you expect from Settlers of Catan type exactly. games. Exactly, yeah. Uh, I kind of so, like that connotation. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think you might, Brett, have gotten one of the last good names for a science fiction game. <laughs> there are there a lot of sci-fi games out there. <laughs> yeah, there can't be many more good l- names left. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Well, Brett, thank you so much for talking to me. Uh, the game will be out today on Steam when, when this podcast posts. Uh, I wish you the best of luck with it. I am having a great time, uh, and I, I'm just dying to get that fourth and fifth race unlocked now. Thanks very much, Tom. This is really fun. Might as well be walking on the sun.